We have come to the end of the doctrinal portion of Romans. This is a major milestone for us. Romans 1 through 8 is all about the gospel. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is all about the Jews and the Gentiles and how they relate to one another in the church. As I've said from the beginning, Paul is answering the question, how come the Jewish Messiah's church is almost entirely composed of Gentiles? The Bible is aware of this and answers this question in many places in great detail. And now we're coming to the end of it. And to summarize where we've been so far in Romans 9 and 10, Paul's answer has been that most Jewish hearts have been hardened for rejecting Jesus Christ. He uses the example, actually, of Pharaoh. That just as God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he hardened the hearts of Israel, which that ought to shock you, because it's a shocking thing. And we ask in chapter 9, how can God do that? How can God harden the Israel's heart and then go out and reach out to Gentiles? And that's where Paul has that famous statement on, uh, who are you to ask questions of God? He can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. But he also explains, but they've rejected the gospel. So it's not as though God has rejected them arbitrarily or hardened them arbitrarily, I should say. The church now consists of Gentiles and a remnant of Jews. That's what chapter 10 was all about. In the beginning of chapter 11 too, there is a remnant. But the point of chapter 11 primarily is that the Jews, Israel, are not forsaken by God. They are not replaced by the church. They are not cast aside as if they didn't matter anymore. You read your whole Bible, and it's all about God choosing Abraham, and then choosing Jacob, and the nations, the children of Israel. That's who Jacob was. His name was changed to Israel. So the children of Israel are these people. And you go all the way through the Old Testament, and it's all about their stories, and their kings, and their prophets. And then in the New Testament, Jesus is their Messiah in Jerusalem, preaching to them. And then in Acts, the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to the world. And the great, amazing shift that happens is that the Gentiles received it, and the Jews didn't. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. That, that was thousands of years in the making, and it seems like we missed a step. But this has all been to explain that. And what Paul said last time is that God has not given up on Israel, but he's using the church to provoke Israel to jealousy. And I find that fascinating. We talked about that last time, that God is using us to provoke his people. And today, in Romans 11, verses 25 and following, we're going to see the revelation of Israel's destiny. Did you know that the Bible tells us things before they happen? And he has told us what is going to happen with the Jews, which is then astonishing to me that the church has had so many weird ideas about Israel and Jews over the years and continue to have them. But the Bible straight up tells us what's going to happen. It's a reminder of God's sovereign mercy. This right here, especially verse 25 down to about verse 27, is one of the key passages of the New Testament. For the doctrine of understanding the flow of the whole Bible, you've got to get this passage, especially verse 25. We're going to connect to many other scriptures. I've talked about a lot of these things recently as we've gone through Romans 9, 10, and 11, because it's very hard to only give part of the story, and, and I've, I've hit on some of this before. We talked about this at length at the Prophecy Conference, if you were there. But this is so important, I want you to know it well, and to know it so well that it, it becomes a little boring for you. Okay, I get that. Good. When we get there, we know we've started to do our job. 
If God is not done with Israel, then what's going to happen to them? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Why don't we start in verse 25 and go down to verse 27. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And here it is. Underline it in your Bible. Highlight it. Remember it. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He opens up by saying, lest you be wise in your own sight. Remember, he's coming off of this rebuke that he gives to the Gentiles who become arrogant towards the Jews and think that we're better than them and that God is done with them and you know, they're the scum of the earth now. He says, no, 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 you need to be humble about it. And he kind of carries on with that attitude in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, meaning lest you come up with all sorts of weird conspiracy theories and prejudices about Jews which has not been well heeded throughout history, but there it is, lest you be wise in your own sight. He says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Now, that word mystery, we know what it means, but in the New Testament particularly, he's saying this is something that God is doing that has not been clearly revealed in the Old Testament. That it's there when you see it, but this is something that nobody ever expected. This is something new that God is doing. This mystery... And Paul very often refers to the fact that the Gentiles have been brought into the church in such large numbers as a mystery. We never saw it coming. That's his whole point. Here's the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. I mean, that's so straightforward. We've got to get that. Partial hardening, in the Greek there, it, the word for harden is the word for callous. That if you... You obviously use a, a part of your body very much. You, you get blisters, and the blisters harden. It covers up. I play guitar, so the top of my fingers on my left hand are grody because they're just covered with these calluses because it hurts when you're pressing down on those, uh, those strings, and your fingers will bleed when you practice a lot. And after a while, that doesn't happen. It's the same idea. Hardening, callousness. The old translations say blindness. It simply doesn't say blindness. It's the same idea. But the word is callousness or hardening and in part. Partial, partial hardening. Like Pharaoh, God has hardened the hearts of Israel. If you've ever said to yourself, how can the Jewish people live in Israel, see Jerusalem, dig up all of these artifacts that, that testify to the truth of Scripture, and be surrounded by godly Christian people telling them that Jesus is their Messiah, and yet totally reject it. How can that happen? If you've ever wondered, the answer is because God has hardened their hearts. We've got to get this, because very often people will take that and then launch off into a, you know, an attack upon the church for all the wrongs done towards Israel. There's a place for that. But no, no, their hearts have been hardened. John 6.44, Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So what Paul is telling us here is that God is not actively drawing most of the nation of Israel to salvation. You can feel the tension in the room. That's a sobering thing, isn't it? You might say, why? Why? Because they crucified Jesus. That's why. Their Messiah came and they said, no. He will not reveal the gospel to them. But look what he says, though. Partial. Partial hardening. 
We've already read that there is a remnant of Jews who will be saved. And Paul said, part of my ministry to the Gentiles is to provoke the Jews so that some of them will realize this must really be Messiah's work. And we see Jews saved all the time. There are Jews who have been saved in this church right now. Okay? So this is not that a Jew cannot be saved. What he's saying is that there will be no national revival among the Jewish people until Jesus returns. That is the current state of Israel, the Jewish people. I'm going to use those terms interchangeably because that's really what it is. 1 Thessalonians 2.16, Paul says that wrath has come upon them. After everything they did, Paul explains in that chapter, he said they killed every prophet and ultimately they killed Jesus. So wrath has come upon them. God's blinded their eyes, partially hardened to Christ. That's where the Jews stand right now. So we ask this question, how long is that going to last? Because there are some that just kind of like put a bow on it and say, see, there you go. Maybe a few will get saved, but God's kind of done with them. Well, no, he gives us a timestamp here. He tells us how long it will last. And it's an exciting prospect. Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Ponder that for a minute. This partial hardening, first thing we see, is not permanent. Because a partial hardening has come upon Israel until. So until. There's going to be an end date to this. Until the fullness of the Gentiles. This is an evangelistic time stamp for when God will lift the hardness of heart on the nation of Israel. He's waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles. What does that mean? Until the completion of the Great Commission. That's how long we're waiting. When the Great Commission is completed. I'm going to read uh, from Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. We're familiar with the Great Commission given in Matthew. That's great. But Jesus has a special way of putting it here in Luke 24 that I want to read. This is after his resurrection, before his ascension. He said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That word nations is ethne in Greek, goyim in Hebrew. So you could, you could legitimately read that. That forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the Gentiles, beginning from Jerusalem. So what Jesus is saying, it's been written that forgiveness will be proclaimed to every nation and all the Gentiles will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the commission. That's what Jesus was sending his 12 apostles to do, who, of course, were the head of the church of which we are a part. We continue their ministry right now. And Paul says this present dispensation, this present hardening of the hearts of Israel will continue until that work is done. The fullness, the completion, until every Gentile that God has determined in his sovereignty to save has been saved. And this is part of the judgment against Israel. Because if you read your Old Testament, the Bible said that this was going to happen. The people will come from all nations to come and worship at Jerusalem. And they will call upon the Lord. And they will call upon David like we're doing. But in the Old Testament, he was saying, I'm going to do this through my people. But this is the mystery part. That when they rejected Jesus, God said, well, I'm still going to do it, but I'm going to do it without you. That's the desolation of Israel. That's the hardness of heart. There's no Old Testament indication that God will primarily work through a Gentile church without the Jews. 
That's not indicated in the Old Testament. Although, if you go back and read it, there were signs. God always knew what he was going to do. So God said things in such a way that you never would have expected that it would be the church doing this work. But he left it open that it did not preclude that possibility. I'm not going to read this passage. I'm just going to explain it to you. But I want you to write this down and maybe go take a look at it later. Daniel chapter 9. There is one of the most specific and detailed prophecies given to Daniel about what's going to happen to the Jews. And this was written hundreds of years before Christ came. And God says there are going to be 70 weeks. Now the word for week is the word seven. So we read these, and this is universal. A week is a week of years. So seven years. It's a seven, okay? He says there will be 70 of those. So 490. He says in this prophecy that after week number 69, the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, will be cut off. So prophesied in Daniel 9 that after 69 weeks, 483 years, the Messiah would be killed. Go back and do your homework. I'm not going to dive into the dates now. That is exactly how long it was until Jesus was crucified. And then it says, after that, the city and the sanctuary would be destroyed. And then week 70 will be dominated by the Antichrist, who we know has not come yet. Paul makes that very clear in the letters to the Thessalonians. So Israel, according to what Daniel said, had 69 of their weeks. Messiah has been killed. City's been destroyed. But where's week number 70? We should expect, according to Daniel, that there should be a seven-year period still to come that will be dominated by an Antichrist who will ravage the Jews. He said, wasn't that what Revelation talks about? Yeah, and Revelation was written like 500 years later, which should tell you that God knew what he was doing with all this. So here's our question. All right, everything has happened in Daniel 9 except for week 70. What's taken so long? Why are we watching them in their desolation? He says desolations have been decreed. Why is this continuing? Well, the delay is because of what we're reading here in Romans 11, that God partially hardened Israel. There are seven years yet to come that will be dominated by who Paul calls the man of lawlessness. Daniel calls the prince who is yet to come. John calls the Antichrist. Same guy, different names. And what we know, let's make some connections here. All right, so we're waiting on seven more years. Paul tells us those years are being delayed because of Israel's partial hardening. And those seven years are to be dominated by the Antichrist. So when we connect that with what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, we begin to confirm and get a fuller picture of what Romans 11 says. Stay with me. This is scripture, a lot of scripture I know, but we've got to get this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Verses 6 through 8, Paul is talking about the Antichrist. And one of the ways he's reassuring the church there, they thought they were living in those last seven years. They thought the end had come. And he tells them, no, that can't possibly be true because the man of lawlessness has not yet appeared. The Antichrist. He says God is restraining the Antichrist. And picking up at verse 6, he says, and you know what is restraining him, the Antichrist, you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. So what Paul is saying is, 
those, that last seven, those last years will not come until Antichrist comes, the lawless one. He is the big sign that these years have begun. He says, but he can't come because God is restraining him right now. He says, until God stops restraining him, the end cannot come. This is why trying to figure out who the Antichrist is is a loser's game, according to Paul. Because he says, God is not allowing that to happen yet. He says, but when he who restrains him is out of the way, then the lawless one will be revealed. And we know, according to Daniel, that when the lawless one is revealed, that begins week 70. That begins the last seven. So if those final years are Israel's 70th week, they're marked by the coming of the Antichrist, but it delays because God is restraining him. Bring it back to, bring it back to Romans 11. There is now a connection between the restraint of the Antichrist and the work of the church. That what God is doing through this church and bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles is what God is using to restrain the wicked one. So all of these together bring up this timeline that we have. That right now we are in between week 69 and 70. How long is that going to last? Jesus said over and over and over again, you don't know and neither do I. So how long is it going to last? Until God is done with the Great Commission. The fullness of the Gentiles. God hardened the hearts of Israel while he saves the world. And then week 70 will begin. And by the way, this is not the point today. This is one reason among many why we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. When you look at this picture and what God is doing, it's like, all right, God is going to be done with his people. And he's going to return to his other people, the Jews. But in any case, after this is over, the end will come. Can I just say this? If our evangelism is tied to the return of the Lord, is there any better reason to get out there and tell people about Jesus Christ? There are some foolish and erroneous Christians who have said things like, we should not try to make the world better. We want to let it get worse so that the rapture can happen. First of all, you are not allowed to do that because Jesus didn't tell you to do that. Second of all, don't you have any hope because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you? But thirdly, Jesus said, I'm not coming until the evangelism work is done. So if you really want the rapture to come, go be a missionary somewhere where they've never heard of Jesus. There are still millions of people that have never even heard about the cross or the empty tomb. It's your responsibility. Keith Green said, this generation of believers is responsible for this generation of lost souls. And who knows if this might not be the last generation. Who knows if that person you're sharing the gospel with in, the, in front of publics might not be the last person that needs to be saved before Christ can return. All of a sudden, my life just got very exciting, didn't it? This is why we do things like put the gospel on the radio and go to the park and have events and talk to people in the street and knock on doors. That's why we're doing this. Because we truly believe that it matters in the timeline of eternity. So Israel has been partially hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I gave you all those other passages just to show you this totally jives with what the rest of the Bible says. But he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Reminding us that this partial hardening is temporary. 
And I would remind you again that when we say Israel, when we say Jews, we are talking about ethnic, national, genetic Israel, not a nice euphemism for the church. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. What did he say there? I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's talking about ethnic national Israel. In Romans 9, verse 3, he said, My kinsmen according to the flesh. Which means when we're talking about Israel, we're talking about Israel according to the flesh. While the New Testament will sometimes use descriptions of Israel to speak about the church, the church never replaced Israel. And then in verse 26 and 27, he gives a couple quotes here. This seems to be primarily coming from Isaiah 59, verses 20 through 21. Although there are elements in this quotation from Psalm 14 and Jeremiah 31, it seems to me, and I like to point this out, Paul is giving kind of a free quotation here. Like Pastor Tyler sometimes just gives free quotations. I don't have it written in front of me, but I know what it says, so I'll quote it. And then some people will come up and say, ah, oh, you, you said shall, and it says will. It doesn't matter. It's a quotation. We want to be right, but it just kind of frees us up to say that the New Testament writers were not, not legalistic about this. He's quoting Scripture the way that we often quote Scripture. And it's important for us to know that because people will come in and say that the New Testament writers totally reinterpreted and reworked the Old Testament. Well, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. But if you want to go look it up, Isaiah 59 is the primary passage he's quoting here. The deliverer will come from Zion. I will make a covenant with them. There is a future for Israel because God has prophesied one. Although we are living, at least in Daniel chapter 9 terms, we're living in a parenthesis. God was going year one, two, three, 483, break. And then the first year of the tribulation will be year 484 of those 490. We're living in a parenthesis. It's glorious and it's wonderful, don't get me wrong. But in terms of the national Israel, it's a parenthesis. The condition that Jesus gave for Israel's desolation to end. So what's it going to take to bring that to an end? Jesus said in Matthew 23, you have to hail me as king. He said, your house is left to you desolate. That's a deliberate call back to Daniel, I believe. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a phrase from Psalm 118 that specifically describes the Messiah. The disciples were singing it. Everybody else didn't really mean it. So he says, until you can call me Messiah and mean it, you will continue in this state. And they are unable to do that in this present condition because God has hardened their hearts. But when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and we believe then the rapture of the church, the restraint of the Antichrist will also end. And the Antichrist will rise. And that final seven-year period will begin. And Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, has a different name for the Great Tribulation. That's the one John uses. He calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. You could read that, the time of Israel's trouble. One more reason why we believe the church will be raptured prior to that, because that's not our time. This is our time. That's Israel's time. And in those seven years, Israel is going to be ravaged. It tells us in the Bible, without giving quotations, you can look this up on your own time, that the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, however you want to call it, says he will make a covenant with the Jews. He'll make a treaty with the Jews. And that he will break it Three and a half years into it. Probably this treaty will include the land of Israel, the temple of Israel. Maybe it's just peace with all of those neighbors that want to blow Israel up like they do today. 
But after three and a half years, that man himself will come into the temple, desecrate the temple, and convert it into a place of worship for himself. And that will begin the worst persecution of the Jews the world has ever seen. It will out-Holocaust the Holocaust, the Bible tells us. They will be driven into the wilderness. They'll be surrounded. They'll be doomed. The Antichrist will win a battle against his enemies. His strength will be consolidated like never before. He will march on the Jews. And in that moment, according to Zechariah, God is going to lift the hardness of heart from Israel. Zechariah 12, verse 10, and chapter 13, verse 1. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day there shall be open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness." Now you read Zechariah 12 and you say, wait a minute, why does God need to pour out a spirit of grace and repentance on Israel? They're his people. Zechariah was writing during the time of the post-exile, where they were committed to the Lord like never before. Because the Lord knew that a day is going to come where I'm going to have to harden their hearts. And you might say that those seven years of tribulation are what are needed in order to break the callousness of the heart of the Jewish people. But he says, I'll pour out a spirit of repentance upon them. I'm going to lift that hardness of heart. They'll look upon me whom they pierced. Another thing, Zechariah wrote 400 years prior to Christ. Nobody had been pierced in Jewish history yet. It was prophetic. The Bible says that the hardness of heart that is on the Jews now will be lifted when they are about to be destroyed by Paul's man of lawlessness, John's Antichrist. And then Jesus Christ will descend from heaven and vanquish the Antichrist and his armies. So they will be physically delivered, but as it says in verse 26, all Israel will be saved, because all Israel will be surrounded, and all Israel will receive a spirit of repentance, and all Israel will cry out for Jesus Christ to save them. That's their future. So just, it doesn't seem right to say that kind of thing about the Jews, that their hearts are hardened. It's not me saying that, first of all. It's the Apostle Paul. But secondly, we believe there is a glorious future waiting for them. So do you see how key verse 25 is in understanding the state of God's chosen people today? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You've got to know that. So that weird people on the internet don't trick you into thinking weird things about God's people. We are living in the days described by Hosea chapter 3. When it says, the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar. Does Israel have a king today of the line of David? They do not. Do they have a sacrifice, sacrificial system today? They do not. Without ephod, do they have a priesthood? No. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Who's the son of David? Jesus. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So we're living in the days where Hosea said they will not have anything. They'll be a people, but that's about it. But after that, they're going to call on the Lord. And how is that going to happen? According to Zechariah, according to Paul, God's going to lift that partial hardening on the last day. So we live in dispensational theology uses the term the age of grace. It's a great term. Because it is the age of grace. 
We used to live, if you were a Gentile, you were living in what Paul called in Acts 17, the times of ignorance. Now you're living in the age of grace. But the Bible also calls this the desolation of Israel. It's a tragic thing. But we're looking forward to their salvation. And the only thing that is preventing that seven-year process from getting into gear is for God to save the last Gentile that he has predestined so that the rapture may occur and the end may begin. The Bible tells us the future. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And how all of these prophets and writers that wrote on, in different cities and across different times, hundreds of years, it all lines up together. That God spoke the same word to them all. So knowing the mystery, Paul's going to explain in verse 28 and following, what is the Christian's relationship to the Jew? And the short answer is that it's complicated. So let's read verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So what is the relationship of the Christian to the Jew? I mean, I mean this, by this I mean the unsaved, unregenerate Jew. Number one, we're enemies. We have to say that. Because I know that we're, we're very careful, and for good reason, to not say anything that, is, that even sniffs of, of anti-Semitism. But it's not an anti-Semitic thing to say that they are enemies of the gospel. The entire Jewish nation and religion has on purpose, positioned itself in opposition to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who died on the cross and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. They do not believe that. They oppose that. They try to convince people of the opposite of that. So for that sake, as regards the gospel, they are the enemies of the church. They hate Jesus Christ. And we must not let ourselves become fascinated by their traditions. I have gotten into this in the last couple of weeks. I'm not going to do it again. But we must know this. The early church especially was, was often accused, and is accused today. I was at a, I'll tell you a story. I was at a symposium at Liberty University with my dad, and you know, people were presenting papers and things they had written, and like scholarship and that kind of thing. And somebody was given a talk called Anti-Semitism in the Early Church. So we went to that one. And as she went through these examples, we, we got a little uncomfortable because some of them were very clear examples of like, okay, this dude had a serious problem with Hebrews, all right? This is not good. But a lot of them were very much just the things that Paul said here. And we're saying, look at how anti-Semitic he is. When he says something along the lines of, God has hardened their hearts and they are under God's wrath. It's like, hold on, that's what the Bible says. And we asked her about that. And she goes, yeah, well, but that, that, was, that was often a cloak for something deeper. It's like, well, but that's what Paul said. Is Paul also Guilty of that? Well, no, no, Paul, of course, is not. And so what can happen is, out of an attempt to not sound anti-Semitic, we go the opposite direction and we start saying, no, no, the Jews don't even need to get saved. Yeah, they do. The only way to salvation for anybody is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So there is a limit to, to that accommodation that we make. 
and much of the anti-Semitism that the early church had, not all of it, to be clear, but was simply strong preaching in this vein. And we ought to have the same kind of strong preaching in this vein. Because we never want to make anybody who is not born again feel comfortable in their relationship towards God. However, number two, they are beloved by both God and us. They are, because he says, as regards election. They are chosen. They are God's chosen people. Junior Asparagus taught you that when you were a kid. They're God's chosen people. And they are still God's chosen people. Well, where does it say that? Right here. Right here. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. They have a future that we just talked about. So we have incredible compassion for them. Remember at the beginning of chapter 9 where Paul says, I wish I could go to hell so that they could all go to heaven? That's the heart we are to have. We have hope for them. And for this reason, this is why we stand by them in their persecution and ought to stand by them in their persecution. It's also why we uphold their covenantal rights to the land and otherwise. We don't have to approve everything that they do to agree that that is God's people and that is God's land. That is God's temple mount and all the rest of it. We've got to be able to hold two truths in our heads at once. And 2022 America is not very good at that. That two things can both be true. They are our enemies and yet they are also our friends. They are opposed to the gospel and yet we love them because God loves them. Some people are too friendly, you might say. And some are very much way too hostile. Learn the lesson that you need to learn. If you have a tendency to become fascinated with Judaism and you just kind of feel bad about your own heritage, then you need to learn the lesson that the Jews are the enemies of the cross until God sees fit to save them. But if you kind of tend to be suspicious about Jewish people, and if somebody's last name ends in Steen or Stein, you just kind of don't trust them, you need to learn the lesson that they are beloved of God. Those are God's chosen people. And do not let yourself get drawn away into all that stuff. Well, God chose them once, but not, not anymore. Well, look at verse 29. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That is, they are unable to be revoked without repentance. Some of the older translations say God's never going to change his mind on Israel. I'm going to read Jeremiah 33. This is kind of a, a little longer section here because... I almost feel like, I, I know this prophecy was written for the Babylonian times, but I feel like it absolutely has application and fulfillment today. So let me read this whole thing to you. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? You ever heard anybody say that? God has rejected his people? Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. There are Christians that believe that. But thus says the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. That's a lesson that we need to hear today. He says, if you think that I've broken my covenant with day and night. Y'all, day and night is so regular, we can do math and figure it out. The heavens, the stars, the expansion of the universe. We can track all that with math. So it's pretty, pretty fixed, isn't it? 
God says, if that has not changed, then my heart towards Israel has not changed. Well, but by Israel, what he means is the church. No, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. We must dispose of the idea of replacement theology forever. It's simply not biblical. And Paul turns again to these Gentiles who might have a hard time with this. Because the early persecutors of the church were the synagogues. So for Paul to come in and say nice things about the people persecuting them was hard. But look what he says. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they who have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may receive mercy. He says, you were once disobedient. You didn't even know who Moses was. But when Israel was disobedient in crucifying Jesus, that disobedience opened the door for you to be saved. Therefore, they are now disobedient like you were. So are they somehow not allowed to be brought out of their disobedience by the same mercy that brought you out of your disobedience? He takes it right back to the gospel and the character of God. He says, if you were in rebellion and God saved you, why can he not save them out of their own rebellion? And verse 32 is, is, is kind of his conclusion statement here. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Word for consigned means to shut something up or to box it in. in God has consigned all to disobedience. We read this at length in Romans 1, 2, and 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 2 was all about, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, your sin, we know this, don't we? Haven't we read it? So on. Your sin is not a mark against your possibility for salvation. God doesn't look at the list of things you've done and say, I can't save that one. There are so many people trapped in that. There are so many people that have gone after some weird lifestyle or another and have gotten so deep into it that they're convinced I couldn't be saved even if I wanted to. It's not true. And we sit here and celebrate how God lifted me up from the pit. How dare we then come to Israel, who is presently in a spiritual pit, and say, God could never get them out of that. Yes, he can. And yes, he will. Because salvation is only by grace. It's only by God's work and God's will. So we need to remember this when we think of the chosen people. And I should say too, you today might be yourself a rebel against God. You yourself might be disobedient to the Lord. You just don't even care what God has to say about things. And if something God says goes against what you want, then you say, well, I'm going to do it my way. You should know that you are also under wrath and judgment. But God today, through me speaking to you right now, is offering you mercy if you will come and repent. Meaning if you will change the way you think and change the way you walk so that God can lead you in a new direction. He'll forgive all of it, everything. He'll restore it back. Because it all comes back to this, that God saves us by His mercy so that He receives the glory and not us. As Paul said in Ephesians, so that no one can boast. And it's that exact glory that he gives to God as we finish this chapter, starting at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We come to the end of Romans 1 through 11. Eight chapters about the gospel. Three chapters answering the questions regarding the nation of Israel and the church. And Paul now simply exalts in God's glorious wisdom. What does exalt mean? Go, go watch a, a baseball team after somebody hits a home run and they all run out on the, on the field and they start slapping them on the head and jumping up and down. That's exaltation, right? He exalts in God's glorious wisdom. And that's what, it, what astonishes Paul here, is the wisdom. When, when he sees what God is doing through Israel, and he puts it together with the Old Testament, and what God is doing in the future, and he ties it all together, he sees how it's all going to work out in the end, and he goes, God is so smart. <laughs> God gets it. God knows what's happening. You've seen all these passages I've read to you now. We can miss it because it's all in one book in front of you. Hundreds of years. Different people, different times, different languages even. And yet it's all coming together to present a unified, consolidated picture of God's plan for his chosen people. That's wisdom. How God is not only able to plan the future, but to execute the future across ages of time. In verses 34 and 35, First, he quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? That is, who does God call up and say, I really don't know what to do here. Could you help me out? Nobody is the answer. Verse 35, he quotes from Job 41, verse 11. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You're not going to do something for God where he's going to go, oh man, I owe you one. No, you don't. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? And I'll add one more thing to Paul's verse here. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. The Lord said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Well, what makes God not like anybody else? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God says there is no other God that can tell you what is going to happen and then make it happen. That's why God gives us prophecy. So, so much for the idea of prophecy isn't really meant to tell us the future. It's just supposed to make us feel good about God. No! God says the reason you can know I am who I am is because I say things and they happen. I mean, look at the life of Jesus. How many times in the Bible does it say, this was to fulfill? This was to fulfill. This was as it was written. Paul's doing the same thing here. We're watching it happen. God's plans for the world are sometimes, as Paul said in verse 33, inscrutable. It's hard to get it sometimes. But we are so privileged to live in the days of further revelation, where we have the entirety of God's scripture in front of it. Paul never got to read Revelation. He was martyred first. I imagine he would have just exalted twice as much if he read that. So the more we know about God and his plan, the more we ought to praise him and bow ourselves before him. It is enough for you and me to learn what God has said and study it and know it well, not to engage in wild speculation about what else might be part of it. 
I forget who said this, but just a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. I know a couple things about Bible prophecy, and I know a lot of things about the news. That's dangerous. <laughs> Reverse those proportions. Know a lot about what God has said. Look into it. And if your study of the Bible and prophecy is not making you more like Jesus, friend, you're doing it wrong. Well, I study the Bible and I, I read a lot of books about Jesus and I watch a lot of things online and, and it's just made me very angry and aggressive. What? Is that, is that what the mark of Christian maturity is? No. Mark of Christian maturity is increased love and worship and praise. It is enough for us to learn from what he has said and bow before him. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. From him, he is the origin and source of everything. Through him, meaning it only exists now by his power and will. And to him, for his reasons and for his glory are all things. Past, present, future. From him, through him, to him are all things. The centerpiece of the world. And in days like these, when the times are tumultuous, by the way, they've always been tumultuous, we ought to trust him. He knows what's best. And as regards matters like this, when you talk about Israel and prophecy and the rapture and all that, it should make you more of an evangelist, not more of a go out and win debates with people list. Evangelist, a herald of good news for lost and dying people. Because we have irrepressible hope that the end is not yet. We sing that song sometimes, and that song is talking about our personal lives. We can apply it to just the church in general. If I'm not dead, then you're not done. If we're not up there, and we're still down here, and there's still work to be done out there. So let me summarize everything that we've learned as we come to the end about the nation of Israel. Just say it one time clearly so that you can hear it. Israel rejected Jesus and the gospel. So God judged them by hardening their hearts to the gospel and delaying their kingdom until the evangelism of the Gentiles is complete. When that is done, he will return his attention to them through seven years of great tribulation to get their attention and he will lift that blindness on the last day so that they will call out to Jesus Christ in repentance and they will all be saved by the Lord himself. That is the reason why the church is mostly Gentile and why we pray and hope and weep for our Jewish brothers and sisters. But ultimately, never forget, they are all saved the same way we are. By grace, through faith, in the finished work of Christ Jesus on the cross.